We're in a series kind of looking at Bible characters, lives that remind us about God, meeting yourself in the sacred text. We looked at Joseph a bit last Sunday night, and I want to finish it focusing on Joseph, but specifically with the issue of temptation. Boy, if you could live life without being tempted, it'd be a great thing, but that's not going to happen until we get to heaven. Genesis chapter 39, verses 7 to 21. I want to read this whole text. It's a little bit longer, but I want to read the whole text to you. Genesis 39, 7 to 21. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? It's interesting in a culture where this kind of, you can't watch a sitcom or a program on TV where anybody is in bed with anybody, married or not, single or not, somebody else's spouse or not. And you just see this this contrast. Here's Joseph, a man of God, and he just says, how is is this possible? Like it just strikes him as this, this isn't, This isn't even in the realm of possibility. This is ridiculous. What a ludicrous thought that I could ever do something like this. It'd be great if that attitude kind of permeated the media a little bit. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? 10. And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day... When he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled, got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of the household and said to them, she feels rejected. See, this has hurt her ego quite a bit that this guy would run out of the house, leave his coat, rather than be near her. She called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home and She told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me, but as soon as I lifted my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. And as soon as the master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant trusted me, his anger was kindled. Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love, gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Let's just kind of start at square one and work our way through a few lessons here. One, 
the circumstances that can breed temptation. I think there are several here. First, rapid promotion and social power. You can see it in verses four to six. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house, put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, now, Joseph handles this situation well, no question. I'm not, I'm not questioning that. But those ingredients, uh, social influence, wealth, power, aren't handled equally well by everyone in Scripture. David, even the man after God's own heart. I was reading, it's in... Uh, 2 Samuel 12, after David sins with Bathsheba and the Lord sends Nathan, the prophet, to confront King David about his sin. It's a fascinating account. It's in 2 Samuel 12, and the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came and said to him, and he tells him this story. There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. So it's told this way very specifically. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb, prepared it for the man who had come to him. Now David, he hears this story, David's anger was greatly kindled against this man. David doesn't even see. Nathan goes, I'm talking, David, I'm talking about you. You had power, you had influence, you had authority, you could do whatever you wanted. And another man's wife, really? And that's, that's, that's exactly the situation that Nathan confronts David with. He, he doesn't handle it in that instance well, the kind of position he has, the kind of authority he has, the kind of power he has. And, and the normal safeguards that would be in place are broken down because, well, because he can. Rapid promotion, social power, wealth, influence, It's always the case. Power and wealth aren't ungodly, and they need not make a person ungodly, but they certainly reveal the genuineness of our character for God because they remove many of the natural restraints to ungodly ambitions and appetites. How we listen to the Holy Spirit when all the other options are still on the table is quite a test. You can think, I mean, I don't need to name names, but you can just think about large ministries in Ontario and how compromise and sin sets in simply because the, the scope and the size and the power 
give people capacity to do things that shouldn't be done. There's quite a test in that. Joseph's position in that house, no question, it would have made certain sins easier for him to commit than they would have been for others, and it's to his credit that he doesn't compromise. B, lack of visible superstition. Do you see that 11th verse? But one day, and and Potiphar's wife knows this, one day when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were in the house. There's waits for the opportune moment. You see, in his grace, God uses uh, external authorities, human supervision to keep us guarded from many of our own weaknesses. We don't have the opportunity to do a lot of things that our character might not be strong enough to resist under different circumstances. Joseph had incredible freedom to do as he pleased much of the time. And this particular time, when she plays her hand, there's nobody in the house, just him. That's the real test of character, isn't it? Who you are when there's no one else around who you are when there are no external constraints on your behavior shows how much the Holy Spirit is in charge of your character. Only the person who can function well when no one else is around to keep him in line has a godly heart. Here's how Jesus outlined it. Profound words in John's Gospel, chapter 3, 19 and 20. This is the judgment. That light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. I used to think that this picture of light and darkness and the idea of loving darkness is just a, a metaphor for loving sin. I don't think that's all that it means anymore. The more I study it and the more I think about it is people love darkness not just because they love sin. They love darkness because it leaves sin undetected. That's what Jesus, that's what John is, uh, that's what uh, John's talking about there. Sin under the radar. Darkness provides a cover for evil deeds. Sin thrives in, in anonymity. People hate Jesus because he comes as light. People avoid Jesus because in him we're forced to face our own willfulness, our own rebellion, our own rejection of Christ, our own sin, our lack of belief. All those things get exposed suddenly. So the darkness isn't just a metaphor for sin. It's a metaphor for sin unseen. I will never forget the illustration. I think I heard it at Jack Hayford's conference probably 25 years ago. And he was just talking to pastors, and he just came up with the story. It wasn't a true story. He just came up with it, but it illustrated it so well. He said something like this. He said, imagine a man who's home alone. He's sitting at the computer, 
and he's on a pornographic website. And he looks at it, and he's clicking. And all of a sudden, the door opens, and his wife comes on. She was shopping for groceries, and he hears, Hi, hon, I'm home. And she comes up the stairs. What's the first thing this guy does? Turn off the computer fast. If you have time, clear your history. Boom, 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 done. And then Hayford asked this question. He said, how is it? He can't stand having his wife find out what he's doing, but it didn't bother him that for hours the Holy Spirit knew what he was doing. That's the idea of living your life in front of Jesus. Living your life in front of Jesus. See, here's another ingredient to temptation. Persistent exposure to the same temptation. It's in 39.10. And she spoke to Joseph day after day. This woman must have driven him nuts. He would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. Notice those words, day after day. This was not a one-shot battle that Joseph had to face. He probably had to constantly remind himself that each day he would see her, she would see him. This was going to come up over and over again, and he would have to have this renewed summons to carefulness and diligence and holiness. Samson failed under that temptation. David failed under that temptation. That's why the New Testament is constantly urging us to be watchful in prayer. Jesus uses that term. I'm, I'm, I can be careful for a little while. So we all have our share of strong seasons against sin. The bigger issue is to be so in the word and prayer with fellow Christians and accountability that you're not caught off guard in your Christian walk. What made Joseph successful? Point number two. Just a couple things. A, he immediately gave the temptation its proper name and nature, 39.9. He, that's his master, is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, he reminds her. Because you are his wife, he reminds her. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And, and all I'm pointing out here, I, I know it's obvious, but I will do better in the face of temptation if I use words like wickedness and sin. He frames it in the right way. You have to deal in absolutes. We're not talking here about competing value systems. We're talking about wickedness and sin. How can I, and he says, sin against God. So David refuses to talk himself out of his accountability. Paul teaches that we do this, that sin gains momentum because other people join you in your opinion of it. 
And you can always find people who excuse whatever it is that I'm tempted to do. Romans 1.32, though they know God's decree, it's not ignorance. They know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And if you haven't noticed, the primary way approval gets passed on simple activities is you rename them. You take terms like sin and wickedness out of the picture. B, I already mentioned it. I just want to highlight it again. He relates every decision back to God. 39B, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? If I get more concerned about hurting others and hurting their feelings than about hurting God and grieving the Holy Spirit, I will never live a holy life. I'll be the constant victim of whatever people I'm trying to please and impress. Joseph has higher aspirations and he's willing to, he can keep himself pure, he can win over temptation because he sees God as the audience of his life. C. He takes whatever steps are necessary to flee the scene of temptation. I want to close with this. 39.12 says, She caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. It's interesting to me that he doesn't even take the time to stop and say, Now give me my coat back. I'm not dialoguing with this woman. That's what he says. We're not, we're not waiting here, and I'm not going to get into an argument. The lesson of the hour is found in that verse 10. And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. Notice, or to be with her. As the danger became greater, he became more resolved to put distance more between himself and she. Learn that lesson, if, if nothing else tonight. A big part of overcoming temptation is recognizing where the downward spiral begins, just the start of it. Because if you start the fight too late, you greatly reduce your chances of success. Joseph is bright enough, smart enough to know big sins get planted in small compromises. I'm not going to be with this woman. Joseph's actions would seem unreasonable to less mature, less careful people. Sure, you don't have to sleep with the girl, Joseph. What's wrong with just a cup of coffee for Pete's sake? And Joseph understands the subtlety of the way sin makes gradual inroads. Here's Paul's words. They're good words. 1 Timothy 6, 11 and 12. But as for you, O man of God, or woman of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, gentleness. But notice, you can't pursue 
until there's something else you did first. Flee. Flee these things. Pursue these things. Then he says, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So the two parts of the battle are in those two verbs. Flee and fight. I'm maybe hopelessly old-fashioned, but I love Matthew Henry's talking about Joseph and leaving his coat. And Matthew Henry said this. This is a great quote. It's far better to lose a good coat than a good conscience. And everybody said, 